This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. We'll begin in verse 21, and we will continue through the end of the chapter at verse 55. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. So he, that is Jacob, fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. 
Thus, I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. (coughs) So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore its name was called Galid, also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, See, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is the heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. He blessed in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would see your faithfulness to your people, to your servant Jacob, and we would see your grace shown forth towards sinners, this grace which comes to its fulfillment and fruition in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Last week, we saw Jacob and his family's abrupt departure from the household of Laban. Jacob had recounted to his wives, Rachel and Leah, the various ways that Laban had done evil to him, and yet how God had continued to bless him. Rachel and Leah, though they themselves were Laban's daughters, also acknowledged that Laban had done evil to them, and so they were willing to go. Of course, the ultimate governing principle in Jacob's departure, the reason that he left, was that God told him to do it. God appeared to Jacob and told him that it was time to return to his people and place in Canaan. Because Laban had been such a fraud and deceiver to Jacob, and because Laban had so benefited from Jacob's presence, Laban was never going to willingly let Jacob and his family leave. Certainly, he would not let his daughters and grandchildren go. 
And so at the end of our passage last week, Jacob and his family stole away while Laban was out of town shearing his sheep. Jacob, his wives, his children, they took all their animals and all their property and they left. Now we also saw at the end of our text last week that a few extra items were taken. Namely, Rachel took Laban's household idols. And so with that, the stage is set for our final showdown between Jacob and Laban, which we see in our passage today. We will look at it in four points. First, there is movement in verses 21 through 31. Jacob and his household depart, but then Laban pursues them and catches up to them. And then second, we see a misdeed in verses 32 through 35. The matter of Laban's household idols has to be addressed. And then third, we see a memory in verses 36 through 42. Jacob rebukes Laban for his years of treachery and mistreatment. And then finally, we see a monument in verses 43 through 55. Jacob and Laban make a covenant and they build a memorial as a sign and then they fully and finally separate. So movement, misdeed, memory, and monument, those are our points for this morning. First, we will look at the movement in verses 21 through 31. We see that Jacob and those with him arose and they crossed the river. This would be the Euphrates River, one of the great rivers of the east. They were heading westward towards the mountains of Gilead, beginning their journey towards home in the land of Canaan. Now Laban is not going to take this sitting down. Not only was he losing Jacob, who had given him all this labor and had been a great benefit for him, he was also abruptly losing his daughters and grandchildren and doing so without any notice. This would be a tough, pillow, a tough pill to swallow, and Laban was not ready for it. And so he chased Jacob's camp. He pursued them for seven days, an entire week. That's how long it took for him to catch up. But he was able to catch them. Given the size of Jacob's operation, his family, as well as all the animals and other things they had to move, they would not be moving very fast. And so Laban could ride hard and catch up with them. Of course, as he was on the way, the night before he was to meet Jacob, he had this dream where God told him to speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Now, it seems that God's words did restrain Laban some, because it seemed that Laban actually came with ill intent. He came to do violence and harm to Jacob. And he doesn't do that, so the word of the Lord does slow him down some. And yet he does not fully heed the word of the Lord because when he does catch up to Jacob, he does speak many things and many of them are false and many of them are absurd. Ultimately, Laban has little regard for Jacob and he has little regard for Jacob's God. But in verse 25, Laban arrives where Jacob and his family were camped. And in verse 26, we hear Laban begin to speak some of his nonsense. He says, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? 
Now, part of the statement is true. Jacob did steal away. He did sneak away while Laban was gone. But Leah and Rachel left willingly. There was no kidnapping. There was no taking at the point of a sword, like Laban says. We saw in our passage last week how the daughters, too, recognized Laban's evil, and they were ready and willing to leave him and be done with it. Maybe Laban didn't realize this. Maybe he didn't want to admit this. It would have been a tough enough thing to lose Jacob, but perhaps he thought that his daughters were still on his side. Perhaps even as absurd as such a thing would be, he thought his daughters and grandchildren would come back to him even if Jacob would not. Or maybe even he thought he could coerce Jacob into returning. Remember, he wanted to keep Jacob poor and present in his household forever. Maybe Laban had some scheme in his mind that he was going to swindle back the things which God had taken from Laban and given to Jacob. But Laban tries to mask all of these treacheries, potential and actual, in false kindness. He tells Jacob, if he knew that he was leaving, they could have had a proper send-off, a celebration with feasting and music. And he goes for the emotional manipulation. He says, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters. You know, his sons and daughters, his daughters and grandchildren he had been depriving and defrauding all of these years. But he's really trying to tug at the old heartstrings. But then Laban in verse 29 reveals the dream that he received from God. He says that it is in his power to do Jacob harm, to punish him and do violence to him, that that was actually what he had come to do. But then God had appeared to him to stop him. Now Laban is still speaking quite a bit of evil to Jacob, so he's not really heeding what God said. But it seems that God's word did suppress enough of Laban's rage to where he's at least just talking instead of actually doing anything. But then Laban tells Jacob, And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. That's true enough, but it's only a small part of the truth. Jacob did long for his father's house, but he was also leaving under a command from God, and he was also quite motivated by how poorly Laban had treated him these last 20 years. Laban seems to all throughout this completely deny any of the evil that he has done. He just conveniently leaves that part out of all the things that he says. But it is also here that Laban reveals the matter of the theft of the household gods, a matter to which we will return momentarily. Now Jacob responds to Laban truthfully. He was afraid of trying to leave with Laban around because Laban would try to stop him. Or at the very least, he would try to stop his daughters and grandchildren from going. And he was even willing to use force to do it. Never mind that the daughters and grandchildren left willingly. Laban had it in his head that surely his daughters would never betray him. They would never go along with Jacob over him. Laban was a bit deluded. He was denying his role. He was denying the evil that he had done in all of this. But speaking of evil, there is this matter of the household idols. And this brings us to our second point, the misdeed 
in verses 32 through 35. In his rant, in his diatribe, Laban did ask one important question. He asked Jacob why he had stolen his gods. Now, Jacob didn't do this. And in fact, Jacob did not even know about this. And he was surprised and angry to hear the accusation that someone in his camp had done it. So Jacob pronounces a sentence of death on whoever had the idols and permits Laban to search to find the idols and take them back. Now what Jacob has unknowingly done here is he has pronounced a curse of death on his wife Rachel. In a certain sense, Jacob acts rashly here. He's so persuaded that no one in his house could have or would have done such a thing, and so he just rashly says, well, if you can find anybody who did this, you can kill them. Little did he know. Now, this also gets back to something that I mentioned before that we saw in the feud between Leah and Rachel when they were having their children. Rachel does seem to lack something of the piety and the trust in God that her older sister had. Last, last week, we went through the possible reasons Rachel could have taken these idols. None of them were good. None of them had any place among the people of God. If she took them to worship them, that was idolatry. If she took them because they were valuable, I mean, that's stealing something that wasn't hers. And never mind that these are still idols. These are unclean things that God's people should not have. If she just took them for vengeance, again, vengeance is the Lord's. It wasn't something that she had any business executing herself. Again, there's no good reason why Rachel would have taken these. And the truth is, for what she had done, she deserved to die. Because idolatry deserves death. The making and use and possession of graven images is strictly forbidden for God's people. And it always has been. So Rachel has committed a grievous sin against God and will have to commit more sin to cover it up and spare her own life. So Laban starts searching the place. He starts working from tent to tent in the camp to try to recover his idols. He goes to Jacob's tent. They're not there. He goes to Leah's tent. They're not there. He goes to the tents of the two concubines. They're not there either. And then finally he comes to Rachel's tent. Now Rachel knows what's going on and knows that she's in trouble. So she schemes and lies to her father. She sits on the idols and won't get up and says she can't get up because the way of women is upon her. That is surely an excuse that would keep Laban from pressing the issue. But what a disgrace this is. Again, there was no good reason for Rachel to take these idols. It was a great sin. It had resulted in Jacob putting a curse of death upon her and her having to commit the very sort of sin they are leaving Laban behind to get away from. There's more lying. There's more fraud. There's more treachery. And to continue to heap up this shame, this will make Jacob's coming rebuke of Laban, much of which was fair, more harsh and less informed by truth than it ought to be. In case you forget, in case you need reminded, as we look at our family history, as we look at the history of God's people, 
in Genesis and elsewhere, we have to recognize we are not dealing with people who are strictly positive moral examples. These aren't always good people. They're often very bad people doing very bad things. At every twist and turn in the story, we are seeing sin not only from without, sin from people like Laban, but we see sin from within God's people, the sins of Jacob, the sins of his wives. Going forward, we will see the sins of Jacob's children. The Bible is honest about the sins of God's people because God saves sinners. These aren't good people that God made better. These were evil, sinful, spiritually dead people that God made alive through his grace. But this doesn't mean that these sins don't matter. What Rachel did was a shameful and disgraceful thing. It taints what ought to be a triumphant moment of Jacob finally having his vindication and his separation from Laban. There's also a bit of ominous foreshadowing here. While Rachel will escape the curse of death that day, she will, before long, die a premature death, giving birth to her next son. But now we turn to Jacob's confrontation of Laban in our third point. After the movement and the misdeed, we come to memory in verses 36 through 43. So Jacob wants to know why Laban has chased him down like this. It might be after the way that Laban has ransacked the tents, gone through them looking for his idols, he was a bit more irritated. Jacob asks, what is my sin that you have so hotly pursued? It's a fair question. Why did Laban feel so entitled to chase down Jacob when all Jacob had done was exercise his rights to take what was his and leave. He also points out that Laban searched his camp and found nothing that Jacob took that he should not have, again, not knowing about the household idols with Rachel, thus further adding to the shame of her sin. Jacob challenges Laban, though, to present anything there that would indict Jacob as having done evil. He basically challenges Laban to a trial then and there on the spot with the witnesses there, a proceeding of judgment. And Laban has nothing to bring. But then Jacob, for his part, proceeds to list his charges against Laban. He had by now been with Laban 20 years. The 14 years he had labored for his wives, plus the six additional years where he had worked as a wage laborer. And he recounts how he had done right by Laban and had helped him. His animals had not miscarried. They were healthy. They were in good condition. And Laban had more and better of them than he had ever had. And this was because of Jacob's work. And Jacob had taken nothing from Laban's flock to which he was not fairly entitled. He had not eaten any of Laban's animals. He paid for those of Laban's animals that were attacked and killed by wild animals. This wasn't right. This wasn't fair. But Jacob suffered those losses himself in silence. But now Jacob has his opportunity to speak. 
And he describes to Laban how hard he had worked in conditions of severe weather and long hours. And he did this all these 20 years, knowing that he worked largely not for any of his own benefit, but merely to enrich an ungrateful swindler. And it was not lost on Jacob that he was being swindled. He tells Laban how he served him the seven years for each wife and the six years for his flock, which Jacob acquired according to the terms they agreed on. Laban didn't have a lawful claim to anything that Jacob had. In reality, Jacob could have probably rightly claimed more for what he had done and how good he had been for Laban and all the various treacheries Laban had committed. And yet, was Laban grateful? No, he wasn't. Laban continuously did evil to Jacob and tried to swindle him more. He changed his wages ten times. He was always concocting schemes and plots to enlarge his portion at the expense of Jacob's. Which bear in mind that Jacob's portion would also be the portion from which Jacob would care for Laban's daughters and grandchildren. What a guy Laban was. And yet Jacob does not bring these charges against Laban to seek his own vengeance. It's not like all of this is just this pent-up rage bubbling to the surface, but rather Jacob is building to a point, and he makes that point in verse 42. Unless the God of my father had been with me, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Jacob knows and understands what Laban has been doing to him. At every turn he has sought to swindle him, and Jacob makes it very clear that he knows Laban's true intentions. If Laban had his way, he would take everything and Jacob would have nothing. And if God had not been on Jacob's side, that is exactly what would have happened. So Jacob is acknowledging that it is not by his own work or his own goodness by which he received what he had, but by the Lord's grace and favor. The Lord has proven himself true to Jacob. Remember back when God covenanted with Jacob at Bethel, That Jacob said he would serve God if God would be with him and provide for him. And God has done exactly that these 20 years, even through much pain and loss and hardship. God was true as every man was a liar. Now Laban's reply in verse 43 is rather pitiful. It betrays who he really is and what he really cares about. He says, these daughters are my daughters. Well, okay, but they're also Jacob's wives. He says, and these children are my children. Well, they're Jacob and his daughter's children, but okay, at least they're family. But then he says, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. And that is not true at all. Jacob acquired what he acquired by the terms that he and Laban agreed to with God's help in making the flocks bring forth for Jacob's portion. While it is true that these two families were essentially one because of the blood relation as well as the 20 years they had been together, 
Laban goes beyond this, asserting his belief that he had a rightful and lawful claim to everyone and everything there, which is absurd. Isn't it fascinating how Laban's sins and fraud have been so well documented, and yet he still views himself as having the right of it? But aren't we all like this when we get caught in our sins? Or at least sometimes aren't we like this? We can get caught red-handed in our sin and we'll have our justifications. We can play defense attorneys for ourselves and we can convince ourselves that what we did was right. What we took, we deserved somehow. If you ever go visit a jail or if you're in another situation where you see people who have been convicted of crimes, you'll often hear this from them. They'll say that they were somehow justified for doing what they did. If they stole money, well, they deserved it. They were entitled to it for some reason. And they'll even maintain their innocence after they're caught and after they're punished. Well, Laban has been caught. His sins have found him out. And yet he just denies it all. He still thinks he should have everything. And yet he also recognizes practically that things are not going to go his way. And so he seems to feign some more concern for his children and grandchildren. And he seems to feign some piety. And this brings us to our final point. After the movement and misdeed and memory, we come to a monument in verses 44 through 55. So Laban asks Jacob to make a covenant with him and let it be a witness between them. They will make a permanent separation that day. So they make this monument of stones to commemorate their covenant making. So it begins with Jacob standing up one large stone as a pillar, and then the others heap stones up around it. So it makes this large, visible, unnatural sign that will show the covenant that they made that day. Just as Jacob placed a stone monument at Bethel at his journey's beginning, another is placed to commemorate its end. And then they eat a meal together to commemorate this covenant. This is something we often see in the making of covenants. Back in Genesis 15, when God entered into a covenant with Abraham, there was this cutting of animals. There was something of a symbolic meal between God and Abraham. Or you can remember back when Melchizedek, the king and priest of Salem, came to Abraham, they shared a covenant meal together. Anytime a sacrifice was offered to God, the people would keep and eat a part of the sacrifice. Again, it was a covenant meal between God and his people. When there are covenants, there are usually feasts and meals to accompany them. And so, too, at this covenant making between Jacob and Laban. Now, what is fascinating is that from this point forward, none of Jacob's words to Laban are recorded. Jacob has made his case. There is nothing more to say. And in this covenant, there is something of an acknowledgement of Jacob's righteousness before Laban and that their separation is being transacted legitimately. We do see that Jacob and Laban give similar but different names to this stone monument. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. This was using Aramaic, the language of the East, 
and it means mound of witness. Jacob uses galid, which is a Hebrew word, but it means the same thing, mound of witness. But this different languages, the use of different languages, it shows a separation. It shows that Laban was a Syrian. He was a pagan. Whereas Jacob was a Hebrew. He was one of the people of God. So this is more than a physical and geographical separation going on. In the languages, we see something of a codification of the city of God being again separated from the city of man, as we've seen many times throughout Genesis. How the people of God and the people of the world, the people who are not of God, are separate. When Jacob departed from Laban, the true religion, the true worship of the true God departed with him. Laban might have lost his household idols, but he would surely get more. And he and his household would go on apart from the worship and knowledge of the Lord, while the true God would be worshipped in the household of Jacob, even if imperfectly and with sins and with exceptions, as Rachel's theft of the idols proved. And Laban pronounces the terms of the covenant, and another name is added to the stone, Mizpah, meaning judgment. And though Laban was a pagan, he invokes the name of Jacob's God. He says, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one another. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see God is witness between you and me. As we saw before, though Laban was no worshiper of God, he acknowledged that a powerful God was with Jacob and had helped him. And knowing that they will separate here for good, he reminds Jacob that it is to God that he is accountable. Now he wants Jacob to take no other wives. This is somewhat rich, given that it was Laban's treachery that made Jacob take multiple wives in the first place. In a certain sense, Laban is telling on himself but he doesn't want to add any more to that iniquity, and he wants his daughters to be cared for in his absence. Also, that stone monument they made would serve as a geographic boundary. Neither of them would cross it again to take anything or to do any harm to the other. But then Laban betrays his paganism and polytheism in the final swearing. He does swear in the name of the God of Abraham, but also the God of Nahor. This would be a, some pagan God of his household. They weren't the same gods. Laban was an idolater, we know, because he had idols that were stolen, and he was very upset to lose them. Jacob, however, swears purely in the name of the God of Isaac. He calls him the fear of Isaac, the true God Yahweh. They continue to feast on the mountain. They stay the night there. And then Laban does have his opportunity to kiss his daughters and grandchildren goodbye and bless them. But after that, Jacob's time of struggle and affliction in the land of Laban is now over. After 20 years, after he had worked so hard and so long, and yet Laban had so often done him harm and evil. Jacob was free from that. 
And through this, God had taught him much and sanctified him. Jacob had gone to Laban as a fraud and a deceiver. He would come back a quite different man. But also God had cared for and provided for Jacob and blessed him even despite all the evil done to him. God does not forget his people, even in the difficult and dark places. God had been faithful to Jacob and brought him safely through this trial and would continue to preserve him in the trials to come. Because our God is faithful. Our God saves sinners and continues to help them and care for them and prosper them and sanctify them and work all things for their good. He did this for Jacob. He does this for us. Perhaps you are here today and you wonder if God is with you and for you. Let this account of God's faithfulness to Jacob be a witness to you. God is with and for his people, even if the world is against them. Even when they face evil men like Laban, doing their best to stand in the way. God is a witness. He sees, he knows, and he cares. Cast your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. Perhaps you're here today and you do not know this God or the salvation he brings. The God who saved Jacob and helped him through this life continues to save sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Son of God who fulfilled all righteousness that we as fallen sinners lack. Christ saved us by his perfect life and his atoning death. And to those who would repent of their sins and trust in him, he offers righteousness and eternal life. Trust in Jesus today and live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for your faithfulness and your provision to your people, even in the dark times, even in the face of enemies and opposition. I pray that you would write this word of comfort on our hearts. I pray that we would even see in it the salvation of Christ, who though we were unworthy sinners, shed his blood so that we might live. And we pray that we would also take this good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.